Hi, everyone. This is Matthew with a note about this episode of the IWMP podcast. This podcast was recorded several months ago, and when we recorded it, we decided to save it to release this week as we approach the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. Because this was recorded a while ago and was recorded and edited on different equipment, the sound quality might be a little bit wonky at times, but we hope this doesn't interfere with your enjoyment of the podcast. So, here is the show. Thanks for listening. That's the best thing I've heard anybody say in three weeks. The readout, the television signals are coming in ahead of the spacecraft signals. It's like they're closer or something, much closer. Hi again, everybody, and welcome back to the IWMP podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad. He's my son. And I get him in front of the TV every once in a while to watch an old movie or TV show from my youth and uh, find out what he thinks about it. This one's about space. It is about space and so much more. Oh, boy. This is, again, one of those movies that had an inordinate impact on me when I was young. We're going to be talking today about Capricorn One. Ooh, boy. Movie from 1978, written and uh, directed by Peter Himes. And there's a lot packed into this relatively ignored movie. My goodness, this movie. This movie has so much in it. I, I, I'm trying to figure out how early to, to tip some of my hand on, on my thoughts here. Very early on, I want to say, we, we almost always have spoilers of one kind or another in these podcasts, and I try to make a note of that in the in the uh, the show notes. There are definitely spoilers for Capricorn One all through this podcast. You can't talk about the movie without there being spoilers. So if you want to watch this movie and get the full impact of it, go ahead and watch it first, then come back and listen to us jabber about it. I'm I'm even gonna say because I've I've looked up about this movie since watching it then because I was it was so awesome and. You, now, if you have not heard of this movie before, have a better experience to go watch it now blind, like I got to watch it, than the people who went to the theater. Because I've seen the posters for this movie online, and the posters are full of spoilers. And unfortunately, I think the DVD box is as well. I think it is. Unfortunately. Yeah. If you, if you can find it streaming, I think it might be available on uh, YouTube download? I, I think guess. so. It might not even be on Amazon Prime right now. It wasn't when we watched it, so I got the DVD from the library. Either of those are going to be better. Find this, str- like, you know, if you are go- if you are going to watch this, and if you should, we'll tell you later, but if you're going to watch this, you're going to want to see it with as little other information as possible. This is an instance of pause the podcast if you want to follow along. Good morning. Hi there, Dr. Calloway. Nice to see you. A funny thing happened on the way to Mars. So now that we've established that, and I think you're absolutely right, Ian, you, it's best to go into this with as little information as possible. Um, it rewards that, I think. I, and I saw it in theaters. This was one of the first movies I saw several times in the theater during its first run, just because it made such an impression on me. Okay. I wanted to go back and see it again. And, and I saw the posters. I knew what it was about. But I wanted you to have a different experience. So when... I was planning to show this to Ian. All I told him was, he asked, what the, what's this movie about? I said, it's about a mission to Mars. <laughs> That's all I told him. And it is kind of about a mission to Mars. It is about a mission to Mars, absolutely. 
mission to Mars, this is the last spoiler warning, never gets to Mars. It's not a successful mission to Mars, but the world doesn't know that. Welcome to, we didn't fake the moon landing, but we're going to fake this one. That's what this movie really is about. It's about the conspiracy theories around the moon landing. Absolutely. It was made in 1978, this movie, so it's less than 10 years after the first moon landing. And all of the technology that they show, and they do a great job of reproducing Apollo moon program technology. It's a Saturn V. It's an Apollo command module. It's pretty much an Apollo lander that they've, they're showing landing on, the, on Mars. It's the Apollo program. And by the way, there's no way you're getting to Mars with a flight system designed to get you to the moon. But the technology is not what this was about. So showing us really lovingly recreated Apollo program stuff, perfect for this movie, even if they were ostensibly going to Mars. The dust they fill a stand stage with is red instead of white. That's right, because that's what happens here. It's about the manned space program is, as always, under budget pressure. They are ready to go to Mars. They've got this trained crew of three ready to go. And it, literally, the very last minute, the guys have gotten into the capsule and are about to, to lift off from Kennedy Space Center. There's a knock on the door. And this guy <laughs> in a suit opens the door and says, you have to come with me. There's no time to explain. You three must come with me. And that bit where there's the knock and they follow out, but the audio keeps giving the countdown, keeps talking about the launch, keeps going, is where I, I, I put down my phone. I picked it up again and opened up a notes page, but I put down my phone and it grabbed me then. That's yes. the hook moment. <laughs> because that's where you're like, my notes are just full of like a lines of, why aren't they in the spaceship? They're still counting the spaceship. Why aren't they in the spaceship? <laughs> Where are they going? It's not the spaceship. Get in the spaceship. You turned to stare at me a couple of times. Yes. And were otherwise captivated by the movie. That, that's a perfect response as far as I'm concerned. My goodness. That is that is the first of a, a long and twisty road. So the setup is there's this, this Mars mission. Everything's ready except that they find out at the last minute that, like in the, in the final weeks, the life support system was inadequate. The crew would be dead within three weeks if they actually went on the, the, the mission. But they couldn't just scrub the mission. Too much money involved, too much political power involved. So the astronauts have to go along with faking it. And if they don't, their families are in danger. Oh, yeah. And, and this is uh, the reveal of that is the first of what I want to call this movie's multiple possible endings. Because this is a movie that kept on hitting a point where I thought, you could end it right there and it'd be this interesting little story and then it'd keep going and it would hit another one of these points and you're like oh that could be an ending and then it would keep going and there were like at least four instances where i'm like how many how much more story are they trying to tell i expect that to end on this uncertainty note that they never think is enough and what would have been a great ending was after the like six or, or, or eight months of travel between Earth and Mars, they, as you said, Ian, they have a soundstage set up with a mock-up of the lander, and it's really tiny and kind of, of, of dinky, but I guess they're counting on the, the bad TV resolution for making up for, for a lot. They are recreating the landing, and they have the astronauts getting out of this fake landing module and giving their little speech and all this, and then they have this wonderful slow pullback just to make it clear that all of this, that the whole world is watching, 
is happening on this tiny soundstage in an abandoned warehouse somewhere in the desert. And I think you said at the time, this would have been a really cool ending if this were a half an hour episode of some anthology TV series. Yeah, this is a Twilight Zone. This is a Black Mirror episode right there. Right. End it there. You're done. And it keeps going. And they've also interspersed, though, to kind of... And this is where I, I thought maybe there is more movie at that point, where they've got this investigative journalist. Right. Like, who was friends with a guy who was working at Control. At uh, Mission Control, Mission Control. in uh, Houston. Yep. Yeah. Who starts to notice something's off about, like, the speed of connection. Like, there right. should be more delay here. Yeah. One of the guys who, who was, uh, works in Mission Control and is dealing with the communications is finding out that the TV signals from the ship are getting to us a lot more quickly than the radio telemetry from the spacecraft. It's as if it's millions of miles closer to us than the spaceship is. How could that be? And then the guy from Mission Control goes missing. Right. And so his friend starts looking into this, and the guy from Mission Control's life has been erased. Like, paperwork dating back that he never was in his house for years. And, the, like, public driving records and such, gone. Right. This guy just stops existing. And they try to kill the reporter, too, by uh, messing with his car. And that whole sequence, that seemed a little bit excessive. We needed a car uh, chase. On the one hand, they're, they're trying to kill uh, the reporter by forcing his car to careen wildly through densely packed urban streets. And on the other hand, they go to the, the, the pains of erasing the very existence of this person who worked at NASA Mission Control. Why not just have the person who worked at NASA Mission Control encounter a, a, an unfortunate accident? Why involve all the resources and all the people you would have to get involved to, to erase his existence? That seemed, it was wonderfully spooky, the fact that they could do this and watching the reporter realize what had been done. But it seemed very unlikely. It kind of took me out of the movie. There was also the problem of the fact that part of the reason this is all being faked, but Mission Control isn't in on it, is that the the project manager group who was working with NASA to set up this Mars mission, the project manager and the group setting up this Mars mission with NASA is going through all the process of faking this because they can't let higher-up government know that the money that was being poured in didn't successfully get us there. This is not just faking it to the American people. This is faking it up to senators and vice president and president. Right. It's like the director of the manned spaceflight program within NASA and a small group of trusted people around him are running this scam from a disused military base somewhere in the desert. So you get the impression they're trying to keep it to as small a group of loyal people as they can, and not even like the, the, the head of NASA probably even knows about this. It's the head of the manned spaceflight program who's behind it. So the fact and, that they include these other people to do this this document scrub seems foolhardy. Right. They could easily have the they could easily have had the, the, the nosy NASA technician meet with an accident of some kind, have the reporter meet with another accident or legal problems sometime later. What they were able to do and what they chose to do to cover up this conspiracy seemed to be a little bit too plot driven as opposed to logical. And But there was a lot of that through the story where they are taking steps to protect the, the conspiracy in some way. Yeah. And I loved the bit where, going back to our astronauts in the soundstage, we have them in this little tiny secondary set for the inside of the module having to do the the questions from their spouses 
over-the-radio delay. Yeah. And one of them who's been having questions about this hides a message something's wrong in making a mistake about a vacation. Right. One of these things where it sounds completely innocuous, but the but his wife knows there's something off about what he said. He's like, we'll have to go back to that, that trip we made. We never made, we never actually got to make that trip. We've kept planning it, but something happened and we didn't. Yeah. We'll, we'll go to the back to the national park uh, with the, with the kids. They loved that. Like, just like last summer turned out. No, last summer, well, we, we never did go to, to Yosemite, but last summer we went to this old west ghost town, this old west town, and we watched people filming a movie. And I remember him saying something about how you can make anything look real with this movie technology. So it was like a very specific, hint he was giving her by intentionally not mentioning where they had really gone the summer before. It was wonderfully complex. I loved it. It it was an excellent little bit. And so on one side, now we've got this reporter who didn't die when his car was thrown into a river by sabotage, teamed up with the wife who's starting to think something might be wrong, and our intrepid, not-actually-gone-to-space-today explorers break out. Well, they have a very important reason to break out. But before I mention that, I want we haven't talked yet about the cast for this movie. We've talked about a bunch of the characters. The cast for this movie was amazing. So many terrific actors for its time. The it, astronaut team was played by the leader was uh, James Brolin. The other two astronauts were Sam Waterston and O.J. Simpson. Oh yeah, that um, was the, one of the astronauts' wife. Wife was played by uh, Brenda Vaccaro. The reporter we've been talking about, Elliot Gould. Hal Holbrook is there, kind of the guy behind the conspiracy, the head of the manned spaceflight program. David Huddleston as a uh, a congressman, and on and on. Just uh, Telly Savalas in a wonderful, weird bit part toward the end. Just a terrific cast, getting everybody who uh, so, so many people you would recognize from great movies and TV shows at the time. For not making it to space, it is studded with stars. <laughs> it is. But you're right. They do eventually, they break out. They're in kind of semi-captivity through this whole thing because they have to be kept under wraps in the desert while while the, the, the ship that they're not on is, is taking its many-month voyage to Mars and back. But during re-entry, when the whole thing is finally going to be done with this and our, the, the space capsule is going to, going to splash down, it disintegrates because there's a heat shield problem. The reentry vehicle is destroyed and the crew is killed instantly. And the question of if they were, they were told there was a problem with life support, that they wouldn't have been able to make it. But whether or not this was an actual problem with the heat shield or an intentional flaw to give a reason to eliminate these astronauts so they can't tell is a little unknown. Yeah, they they never really make that clear, and I like that. And even when I watched this the first time when I was like what thirteen years old, I wondered about that. You know, is this was this a horrible accident? But now we have to square the books by actually getting rid of these three astronauts, or was the plan to always have them quote die at the very end of the mission? Otherwise, we've got these three guys who could decide to spill the beans any time in the next fifty decades. Or five, next five decades. Fifty decades. Yeah, fifty decades. You know who knows? Their astronauts are in good shape. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I I keep going back and forth on whether it was a convenient accident and oh, because you supposedly died, now we have to kill you, or this was our plan all along. Because they can still sell this as a successful mission if there was a heat shield problem at the very very end of it. We still got to Mars. We still did a lot of science. We still showed people that manned spaceflight is worth something. 
And too bad about the astronauts. And welcome to where the second ending point could be when we see the three astronauts realize this means we're dead. They just said it on TV. No, it means they're going to have to kill us. Welcome to our second potential ending point yes. where they could have ended this as a shorter story, but it keeps going. It keeps going because then it becomes more of a, an action movie. Oh, yeah. They they pick the lock uh, to the soundstage? Not exactly. They're locked in a, a conference room. We've seen them in this conference room before during this great speech by Hal Holbrook explaining why they have to fake this mission. They, um, the, the mission commander, played by James Brolin, has this St. Christopher medal, and he uses that to pry apart the hinges on the door to the conference room. And that's how they break out. And the reason oh, yeah. I remembered that was that when I first saw this as a kid, I thought, I have learned something from this movie. I know how to break out of a conference room <laughs> if I'm ever locked in there by evil government agency administrators. I know that if you take, if you push out the, the hinges, the hinge pins, you can wrench the door open the wrong way around. So, you know, it's educational TV. Um, this is part of my uh, responsibility as a dad. <laughs> you know what? Actually, that, that is a very good way to... Escape from a situation. The lock part of a door is always the portion they reinforce, but you can you can break a door a lot of other ways. That's right. Yeah, it's uh, doors can open many ways other than the the ways they're designed to open. And you know, Saint Christopher was supposed to be for safety for travelers, so that metal was uh, was appropriate. There are many doors, Ed Boy, to, to make a <laughs> reference to a, a completely different show. Have you any idea where we are? No. Which direction are we in? West. Once we hit the coast, we'll go north. All we've got to do is get to any city, any place there are people. A newspaper, a television station, any place we can show up and be seen, then it's over. I'm not sure it's exactly over. So yeah, they get out of the, the conference room, they get out of the warehouse, they like knock out some guards and, and steal the, the light air, the, the small jet that they had been shuttled there with. And then they have a crash landing in the desert because the plane was just about out of fuel. And they each take a part of the survival kit and say, we came from this direction. We've got three other cardinal directions. Each of us will take one. And they start walking. Yep. Q ending three. <laughs> Just seeing the three of them separate and walk in straight lines away from one another out into the desert. I mean, talk, talk about a powerful little moment. My goodness, that scene. Just composition-wise, that is, that is excellently done. Some great photography in that whole desert sequence that is most of the movie from this point forward. And that really kicks it off well, was that great scene of, of the three of them separating, hoping, and all three of them, you kind of know that they're thinking, maybe one of us will survive and get to some place where there are people and we can tell the truth. And then they, they each run into environmental hardships. We've got the large plateau mountain. We've got the, the like, crevices the the ditches in the desert right the dunes and then the other one finds a different mountain range area yeah i gather there were uh there were some mountains wrapping around this or hills and i i couldn't buy all of that necessarily i mean sam waterson's character was going in i think he was going north i forget exactly but he hits this like almost sheer ridge but it's like he's been programmed i was told to go north so i can't deviate i've got to keep going <laughs> In some of the wide shots, you can see that, like, 60 yards to his right is a part of this little ridge that would have been trivial to get over. But no, he's scaling the 200-foot-tall sheer face of the cliff <laughs> because it happened to be what's in front of him when he was walking. North, 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 <laughs> right, north. 
north. <laughs> just you know, I know they recruit astronauts from the military because they are well trained and can take orders. But I would hope that they would also put guys who know how to improvise a little bit in the manned spaceflight program. Yeah, this is. I didn't expect to say it. This guy needs a little bit of Bill Murray training if he's from the military on this. <laughs> and he was the jokester of the group. He was. Sam Watterson's character was always making these horrible but sometimes also even funny jokes. Oh, he, he makes one while he's going up the, the cliff. Oh, yeah, the classic mom's on the roof joke. Mom's on the roof. And and that's, that's, that's punctuated by the fact that when he finally gets to the top, there's two black helicopters with men in suits waiting for yep. him at the top. And then, uh, having gone in the opposite direction, I believe, we've got O.J. Simpson's character getting caught in these these dunes and ditches. Right. He's desperate for water. It seems even more so than the other two. Maybe the other two found some along the way. But as he's desperately digging in these dry, the low spots in this dry riverbed, trying to find some glimmer of water, he thinks he sees birds, but no, they're not birds. Yeah, and then he's, he's, he's captured and implied killed as well. Yeah, they make it. They they never actually show us, but it's pretty clear that the the pilots of these two helicopters are uh, are either to summarily execute these astronauts or bring them back to the base so they can be summarily executed. Yeah, I'd assume just for just for safety, they're probably not either conscious or among the living when loaded onto those helicopters, no matter what. Right, and you know we we've mentioned these are black helicopters. This movie was probably my real introduction to the whole sinister government conspiracy genre, concept, everything. And it had all the components, all the way from the small group within the government has a secret agenda and is keeping secrets from the people and from the rest of the government, to the the black helicopters, to the unwitting dupes, to the witting but coerced dupes. It had all the pieces of, of conspiracy theories. And, you know, I keep pointing to the bookshelves that are behind me as we record throughout this uh, podcast. There's probably a whole shelf uh, on those bookcases that wouldn't be filled with the stuff it's filled with were it not for Capricorn One. And it's black helicopters. It's black helicopters taking astronauts out of the desert. Yep. But that leaves us with one astronaut, the intrepid mission commander, James Brolin. My goodness, this ma- this man goes through like miniature trials of Hercules for a bit. He is he's like fighting off dehydration, climbing up his own little part of a mountain into a cave, then being attacked by like scorpions and snakes. Right. He is he he sees the black helicopters before they see him, so he ducks into a cave, but the cave is home to a rattlesnake. But he kills the rattlesnake and eats it. And then he eats the rattlesnake because A, he's the toughest guy in the world, and B he now has had some food and and moisture, which the other two didn't, which is probably why he actually survives. He survives, and I, I kind of want to say this could have been ending of him just kind of going that bit feral in the wild for a bit, but no, I'm not quite the same as the other ones. doesn't have the impact or weight. Yeah, there was no finality to it. If they had left it there, you could have imagined... A an epilogue fast forward to 1990 and some hitchhiker finds this ancient hobo in the desert who's rambling about I was an astronaut and I was supposed to go to Mars but they stuck me here instead okay Grams thank you here's a quarter yeah <laughs> it still is an interesting different story but they could it would require that epilogue to make this fin- finish if right. they wanted to end it there but instead I, I don't even know how he gets to the place he like climbs down after the helicopters pass 
and then keeps going or something or like changes direction. Yeah, no, he just keeps going and they maybe he finds a, a, a dirt road and, and follows it for a while. But their idea was if we go north, south and west, eventually one of us will find some signs of civilization. And he does, but it's an abandoned gas station with no signs of life or anything and no working telephone. Uh, but at least he's found some place, some shelter. And in the meantime, our reporter, played by Elliot Gould, has been trying to follow this story as well. And he's been trying to follow the trail of, um, of some of the little pieces of information he got from his technician friend from NASA and remembered that his friend had said something about the TV signals seemed as if they were no more than 300 miles away, and that's not possible. So he figures out what's a th what's a 300 mile radius around the Johnson Space Space Flight Center in Houston, and what old military bases are there. And he's actually doing some interesting detective work oh, yeah. to put together where these guys might be. Oh yeah, and this has this has the reporter pulling in like the favor from his I'm guessing on and off again girlfriend. Yeah, the 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 woman he would like to have as his girlfriend. Yeah, I who's like who is absolutely brushing him off. But now that he's like showing a passionate interest in pursuing a story and asking for her for favors to to do that, suddenly she thinks he's okay and she helps him. There, there, it's some great uh, quip and witty back and forth between them. I did like that bit. Right, and that was Karen Black playing that other reporter in a, a supporting part that she did really well. Okay, again, again, the whole a lot of great seventies actors in this. Um, but yeah, okay, he's the one who then finds the, uh, he, he, like, hears about the helicopters and then finds about, finds the, the old guy with the plane. Yeah, after he finds the, the old military base with the remains of the fake Mars landing and finds the, the commander's St. Christopher medal in the debris, the medal he used to break out of the, uh, conference room. So he knows he's onto something. Oh, yeah. And he finds... Uh, a way to expand his search by finding a guy with an old crop dusting plane. Oh, who says that he's all black helicopters and say, follow that direction. And that's how they like hunt him down, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah. And they, the, the pilot, the crop duster is played by Telly Savalas. Very broad character, play, played for laughs, but still somehow doesn't break the tension of this great action ending. No, he just keeps insisting that, no, 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 no. You, you and your friend pulled some sort of heist. I won't part of the, the, the treasure. My name is Caulfield. Hey, I can't help that. Mr. Albain, how much do you charge to dust a field? $25. I'd like to hire your plane. That'd be $100. You said you charge $25. $25 to dust a field, but you ain't got no field because you ain't no farmer, which means you ain't poor. Yeah, he figures that's the only reason to be, to be trying to get to somebody before the government does out here in the desert. And he's not saying, I'm going to turn you in. He just wants part of the loot. <laughs> okay, 100 125. What? Because you said yes to 100 too quick, which means you can afford 125. Proceed to awesome action scene of picking up our astronaut uh, onto one of the wings. Uh, okay, this is where it gets a little silly, but he's the astronaut grabs onto one of the wings of the plane as they're chased and shot at by helicopters. The crop duster is outmaneuvering them and doing all this acrobatic aerial work. Yeah, so like minutes after the black helicopters find this gas station where the uh, the astronaut is, um, the guys in the old, in the biplane find it and do this touch and go. They're on the ground rolling just long enough for him to grab onto the wing, like you're saying. And yeah, I don't care how strong and tough 
this astronaut is, regardless, putting aside the fact that he spent three days in the desert without much food and water. No, he could not have held on to the, the guy wires on that um, uh, and, and the braces of that biplane during all those acrobatics. <laughs> G-Force training. Extreme edition. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't. I know that they do the centrifuges for G-Force <laughs> training. I don't think they require you to hang on by your fingertips while you're doing it. If you thought you were ready for Mars before, you're going to be ready now. <laughs> I think you have just figured out the answer to funding the manned space program. <laughs> we have to have it taken over by WWE. Yes. <laughs> and we'll send wrestlers to space. Dwayne the Moon Rock Johnson. <laughs> that works. That he's, works. If they ever remake this movie, he's got to be in it. Oh, goodness. Yeah. But yeah, the, the so, so one astronaut survives and... He and Elliot Gould show up at the memorial service for the astronauts. Yeah, he crashes his own his own funeral, and you see all the TV cameras chain uh, uh, turning to 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 see him running into the uh, uh, the cemetery, which they got into very very easily. There was not a lot of access restriction to this event uh, at which the president of the United States was speaking, well, so that was kind of surprising. I know, okay, maybe security was not. Uh, as, as tight as it is today, back in 1978, but still, well, you 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 roll up to the uh, the guard gate, and it's you know, what event are you here to attend? Uh, what funeral are you here to attend? My own. And you hold up the little pamphlet showing your face as one of them. The guard's just going, huh? And you keep driving. <laughs> that might work. And that's that. Uh, that's the real ending. That's After the real all these ending. potential possible endings. We get this terrific uh, uh, extended action. An aerial fighting scene. Uh, not that the crop duster has any weapons other than a payload of crop dust, which he uh, uh, blows up two helicopters. Yeah, with. Uh, deploys at exactly the right time in conjunction with a cliff face to take care of the helicopters. But yeah, it it was a movie with with starts out with a twist, even though the the posters give away that twist annoyingly. But gives you so many more twists, it's almost okay that they do that. Yeah. If it wasn't for the fact that there are these other twists, that poster would be a, a movie ruiner. Right, right. But the fact that this has so many other points where it, it swerves on you, it could be a different... If it ended there, it would leave questions. But it decides to choose one of those and keep going. Each time is amazing. And that ending felt a little cheesy what with the freeze frame as they're running over and and all the pivot of the cameras and such and leaves a different and i don't want to say lesser but a, a more a, a softer pile of questions at the end it's not on it's not a will justice happen it's how will justice happen and that is a different thing right it was it was filmed and scored and everything has a very triumphant ending but it still didn't have as much impact as some other parts of the movie did. Mm -hmm. And the score, by the way, I thought was really good. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith uh, did the score for this movie, but it was it was a good score. But it, I, I think um, Mrs. Darling Wife pointed this out. It was used very sparingly. Yeah, it it, it didn't lean on the score to let you know this is an important conversation. The score was used mostly during action sequences to heighten the action, not to tell you what to think or feel. It was excellently scored. It was. Uh, how do I phrase this? It was a movie that decided it was trying to tell a story and happened to ask a bunch of other questions on the way right. in the end. But it also, in knowing what it wanted to do in the end, 
actually does a great job of being able to make sure that its cast, its score, its cinematography across the entire way is able to come together into that final moment. And that comes together really to show you what a good director Peter Himes is. He wrote this, but he also directed this. And I think it is one of those movies, I don't hear people talk about it much. I don't think it gets a lot of attention. But uh, I really think it deserves more than it gets because it uh, it puts together all of these pieces and all these uh, artists so well. And I do kind of think that it has a cultural impact more than it gets credit for. Partly because it was all about moon launch hoax conspiracies covered up as a story about a Mars launch. And there, unfortunately, there are lots of people online and elsewhere who are insisting that we never went to the moon and such. And some of them have gravitated to this and said, oh, you see, this is how they could have done it. Well, no, it's a movie. And and uh, the the extras on the DVD we watched, we saw some of those. And it's really just a bunch of cast here getting really mad at those people for gravitating to it. Yeah, Peter reason. Himes, he's trying to restrain himself, but he's obviously not happy about people have taken his movie and, and trying to make it about a real moon hoax when it. The entire it's point, a, of, the, yeah, the entire point of the movie is that the attempt to do so fails horribly due to the human element. There is actually a very much, no, if it was fake, it would have been blown wide open. Right, it, right. It's not fake. We did that. Is kind of part of how that movie, that ending works. He is, yep. he is almost table flipping mad, but he is getting himself like together to sit down and talk to this camera about the fact that these people keep on taking my movie going places i don't want them to okay all that being said and yes i do know i'm very confident that we landed men on the moon several times and brought them back safely to the earth and the uh parts of the vehicles they used to uh to get there are still up there all that being said i have to for a minute go into red yarn and pushpins mode I don't read all, I, I've read too much of this conspiracy stuff not to. This was written and directed by Peter Hyams. He, if a few, not too many years later, like six years later, went on to make the movie 2010. Oh? 2010, I don't know if you've seen that, Ian. Sequel to 2001, A Space Odyssey. Oh. <laughs> Who do the conspiracy theorists say was responsible for faking the, the, the video footage and other aspects of the Apollo moon landings, Stanley Kubrick, for whom the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey was essentially a test, a laboratory for the technology and special effects he needed to fake the moon landings. So was the fact that Peter Hyams chose to make a sequel to 2001 after having made Capricorn 1, using even showing even better special effects than were in 2001, because it was you know, 15, 20 years later, is that part of his ongoing career-long commentary, trying, without admitting it, to make us all aware of how the moon landing was faked and by whom? I, I, my goodness, you really did go red string and pushpin mode there, <laughs> but awesomely. That's the problem. I, it's, it's a, fun way to think even though the places it gets you are just like this is terrible why am i here this is awful what was i thinking but the drive was so much fun i know plenty of places like that i 
I, I have, there are drives that'll take you places that are completely bewildering. And sometimes you'll also take a drive and say, somehow I'm at Tiny Town. And you're, yay, Tiny Town. This is, this is absolutely something I can relate to. Now, he also went on to make the movie Time Cop. So I'm sure I could tie that in somewhere <laughs> if, I, if I have to. <laughs> but, but you see, it's, it's, that's how, that, that, that's the danger of that kind of conspiracy theory thinking. It's, it's, the process can be fun. Oh yeah. As long as, as long as you can, as long as you can enjoy the process without believing your result. That's right. It's an excellent thought experiment. And unfortunately, it, it's not the wholesome pastime it seemed to be 10, 15, 20 years ago. It's, there's, there's more at stake these days and too many people actually believing this stuff. So. Uh, it's uh, I don't slip into that mode for fun the way I used to, (laughs) but having seen Capricorn one for the first time in decades, it's hard not to. And at least this sort of podcast gives us an opportunity to do that on occasion in this controlled cinema environment. That's right. I think we've got very little uh, danger of people taking us too seriously in this. Oh, yeah. Shall we get to our final judgments then? We do, because we do have some serious questions we have to address in this podcast. And one of them is what to do with this movie. We, the, we need we need new words. The the binge or no binge doesn't quite work for a, a movie that's just a single sitting. But yeah, I guess it's watch or not screen or no screen screen or no screen. Yeah, yeah, screen or no screen. So what's your verdict on Capricorn One? Screen it. I I absolutely say screen it. And I'm gonna even say this is a movie that has four nice delineated portions parts where you can pause the movie and get yourself more popcorn and let those questions percolate before you continue. So it, it it's a great screening movie. It is. Yeah. I I totally agree. Watch this um unfortunately, you know, I'm I'm hoping that if you hadn't seen it before you did pause at the beginning of this podcast and now you're back after seeing it. If you've done that or even if you didn't and and we've given you some spoilers, if you can share it with somebody but not really tell them what it's really about. That's fun. Oh, yeah. It's fun doing that to Ian. So, so give it a try. If, if you're Tell not, him it's about a mission to Mars. If you're not me in this situation, you get to be my dad and you know perform a small IMMP project, you know IMMP to someone else here for a moment and uh, subject them to a piece of media they're not expecting. So, huzzah! So, yeah, I think we're we're definitely in agreement. This is worth watching. If you haven't seen it before, or if you haven't seen it in a long time. Absolutely, give it a watch. And it's still worth watching, even if we spoiled the plot points for you here. Absolutely. That leads to the other question, though. That's right. Revive, reboot, or rest in peace? Hmm. I'm going to say rest in peace. As much as I like this movie, I don't think it as its own story needs to be told a different time. I don't think there's any, like, reboot you can do that isn't, seems unnecessary. Or revival, unless you're going to do a lengthy court drama about all the subsequent lawsuits but there's plenty of story elements in here that could be told again and in in fact there are some great movies that are still kind of approaching these same social questions uh the the film moonwalkers with rupert grint oh right came to mind because it is an excellent movie that is more recent that's still tackling the what if the moon landing was faked questions that this same movie was predicated on but that's an entirely other movie and i don't think capricorn one needs to be remade or done again capricorn one stands on its own you can it can be left lovingly to rest in peace 
and stay where it is because other films have already picked up the the torch to make those questions again with new story elements to approach it from another angle again. I can definitely understand that that uh, response to it and saying, you know, don't don't certainly don't revive this, don't reboot it, do other things, but let this rest in peace. I think I come down a little differently. I, I definitely say don't revive this. There's no more story to tell, really. I, we don't need to know the details of the outcome. We don't need to see the rest of these people's career. It's given us enough to figure that out for ourselves, and that's all we need. I could see a reboot, though. I could see a reboot that was addressing issues that are more contemporary using that same framework and even that same idea of a mission to Mars. I could see a story told today the story of Capricorn One, but involving questions of the the the, uh, the overlap and interconnection between government and media and parts of both that are fueled by dishonesty. Incorporate new uh, questions of technology and how much easier it is to fake things in so much more detail. Do you even need to keep the astronauts alive? Do you even need to recruit real astronauts at the beginning? Maybe what somebody finds out is the fact that there really were no real astronauts, or the astronauts are people who were injured in a training accident, but and they're, but they're participating in this so that their legacy becomes that of the guys who went to Mars. I, I'm coming up with these ideas off the top of my head, but I'm just thinking that when it comes to government and media and technology, there are new things to talk about, and this might be an interesting way to do that. Absolutely. I completely see what you're saying. I think we run into the question of, you know, of is it the same broom? If we're trading out parts of this story, replace the handle, and we're updating the technology with new questions, replace the bristles, is it the same broom once we have replaced all the parts to it? Is it the same movie if you're updating it that much? Or is it another movie, a new, excellent movie, that is picking up the torch of the questions Capricorn 1 asked, but is no longer Capricorn 1? Yeah, and I, I, I see what you mean. It, it becomes a ship of Theseus kind of question. You've replaced all the parts. Is it the same thing? But, and yeah, you, you could do all of that with a different property and a different title, different story. But it's still, my, there might be something interesting about going back to this movie heritage at the same time. So, uh, yeah. you, I'm, I'm not saying that a reboot of this movie is the only way to do that, but it would be an interesting way to do it. I can definitely understand that. And, I definitely agree with one part of that. It's if you were to do anything and it had the Capricorn one name on it, you would have to add new twist. You'd have to add a new change in part because people who come to it not knowing anything are going to be surprised and excited by the twists and turns. But the people who have seen the original are going to have are going to know what to expect. And even if the, the posters and such ruined one, there was plenty of twists for them later on in that same story and you need to put something that would change that would would put that new spin on it so that those returning viewers to something with the same name still get that same <gasps> surprise moment that was so awesome in this yep yeah it would have to be done with a lot of skill if they were going to do it well i think that gives us a verdict for capricorn one definitely go out and watch it and uh and maybe let us know what you think about whether it should be uh, revived, rebooted, or uh, allowed to rest in peace. In the meantime, you can reach me on Twitter at ByMatthewPorter or online at MatthewFPorter.com. Ian, where can people reach you? And you can find me at ItemCrafting on Twitter 
or at itemcrafting.com. And you can reach the podcast uh, at immproject.com or on Twitter at immpcast. And we'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. Let, let us know what you thought of it. Let us know if uh, you've got a suggestion for twists and turns or even suggest other media that my dad might might remember from his past that he can subject me to. And there are rumors on the internet that this podcast is actually produced in a secret government studio somewhere in the desert southwest. I am not going to comment on those theories. And remember, go find something new to watch. <laughs>